Before we get started with this episode of the podcast, I'd just like to say that there is some dirty jokes going on in the podcast and some adult material. If you have children with you, you might want to save this episode for another time. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has indeed walked across hell. (laughs) Wow, I can't even believe I said that. This is a podcast that's walked across hell. Okay, there it is. We have come all the way down to Canto 34 of Inferno, where it lines 70 through 93. We have passed Satan. We have passed all the rings. We have done all the things. There's nothing left to do except get out of hell. And we got half a Canto to do that. These lines are my English translation of the Medieval Florentine. You can find them on my website, markscarbro.com, not Scarborough like the fair, but scarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. You can go out there. You can find this translation. You can print it off. You can make notes on it. You can drop comments there. Otherwise, I'm just going to read it to you. It's a complicated bit. We're going to get kind of down in the weeds a little bit on this podcast and go out into some ancillary material because there's a dirty joke here and it needs a little explanation. So here we go. Inferno, Canto 34, lines 70 through 93. So to do as Virgil wished, I took a hold of him around his neck He figured out the timing and the distance just so that when the wings were at their full open span, he got a grip on those hairy obliques. From clump of hair to clump of hair, he climbed down between the thick pelt and the frozen crust. When we got down to the spot where the femur turns in its socket, right at the widest spot of the hips, my leader already worn out, but with a great deal of effort, brought his head around to where his thighs had been and gripped the fur like a man climbing upward, so that I believed we were going back to hell again. Hold tight, because it's by stairs like these, my master said, gasping for breath like an exhausted guy, that we've got to take our departure from such all-encompassing evil. After that, he got out through a little hole in the rock, set me down right on its rim, and with careful footing, brought himself over to me. I lifted my eyes, believing I'd see Lucifer just as I'd left him. Instead, I saw that his legs were sticking up above me. Well, if I became rattled like that... Then let the dullards out there think a bit about the point I had just passed. That's where we're going to drop it. At that moment, the big turnaround, the coming out the other side, Satan's legs kicking. They're not kicking in the text, but I want them to be. So I'm going to say kicking in the air. (laughs) I want them to be in motion. Of course, that would defeat the whole immobility thing. But I want to see Satan's legs kick in the air. I can't help myself. So... (laughs) (laughs) There they are, up in the air, above Dante the Pilgrim and Virgil. Dante has become a little bit confused. This is a complicated passage in some ways because it so goes against what 
we often think of as medieval thought. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about the dirty joke in the passage, which you might not have even seen. I want to talk about references in this passage to other moments in Inferno because, yes, this is Dante and the poem is becoming increasingly self-referential. And then finally, at the end, I want to talk about Felix Scalpa, the fortunate fall and the way that it plays out inside this passage. Let's start at the beginning. So to do as he wished, I took a hold of him around his neck. If you remember, Virgil has said, we've seen all the things. There's nothing left for us to see. We got to now keep going. And so then they walk up closer to Satan. But this line I find very curious. To do as he wished, I took a hold of him around his neck. How does Dante the Pilgrim know to do that? How does he know to grab hold of Virgil? We're going to play on that in just a minute, but it's curious. It doesn't quite make sense. I can understand if it said, so to do as he wished, I followed him up to the great worm, or to do as he wished, I walked trepidatiously behind him towards Satan. But to do as he wished, I took a hold of him around his neck. Does Dante know he needs Virgil to get out of here? It's a curious little bit of questionable motivation in the passage, and it may bring us around to a larger point. So let's go on in the passage. After Dante grabs a hold of Virgil's neck, Virgil figures out the timing and the distance just so that when the wings were at their full open span, he got a grip on those hairy obliques. Let's just stop there. So Virgil's watching Satan's wings open and close and open and close, and he times it just perfectly, and he grabs hold of Satan at his obliques. I'll talk more about that in a minute, but let's just talk about this. Dante needs Virgil to get out of hell. This puts the nail in the coffin, I think, for some people who claim that there was a conversion experience earlier. Remember when Dante looked at Satan's three faces and he said, I was neither alive nor dead. And some people read that as a kind of baptismal or conversion imagery. And it could be, it still could be, but it's not a full conversion because Dante cannot get out of hell under his own steam. And surely this is unbelievably important. Dante the Pilgrim still needs Virgil to get out of hell. Dante can't touch Satan. Is that the point? That Virgil grabs a hold of Satan? That Virgil takes a hold of the hair? You know, this is old folkloric stuff that Satan is hairy. Maybe he has goat legs. It doesn't say that in the passage. But you know that old folkloric imagery of a body with hairy legs. In this case, Satan seems to be hairier than that. But still, it is Virgil who grabs a hold of that hair, not Dante. Dante doesn't touch Satan. Satan. That is probably important. The damned Virgil can grab hold of Satan. Dante still needs the damned Virgil to get out of hell. It's curious. It's not fully explained, and it 
always causes me just to pause right here in the passage. Maybe there's a corrupting influence in touching Satan and Virgil's already damned. Maybe Virgil is still a better poet, and so Virgil can handle the ultimate evil. Maybe Virgil is still necessary, yes, to the pilgrim's development, as we will see in the cruelest moment of all, which is coming up in Purgatorio. Is it that, in fact, Virgil is in some way still the way through, still the way ahead. Yes, and definitely part of this passage. Moving on. From clump of hair to clump of hair, he climbed down between the thick pelt and the frozen crust. Let's stop right there. Satan is not held by the ice. It's not that Satan is here frozen in place with Cocytus running right up to him, that frozen ice sheet of the ninth circle of hell. Rather, Satan is held in place in a spot in which the ice sheet doesn't actually meet his body. That seems important to the passage itself because it seems as if Satan is held here by forces stronger than the ice sheet, which his tears, as well as the rivers of hell, of course, but which his tears are partially creating. It's an interesting little twist to have Satan not held by the ice the way the other sinners are. Let's go on in the passage. When we got down to the spot where the femur turns in its socket right at the widest part of the hips, my leader, already worn out with a great deal of effort, brought his head around to where his thighs had been and gripped the fur like a man climbing upward. Let's now stop there. Notice how anatomical this has all gotten. He comes up to Satan and he grabs his hairy, I translated it as obliques. That's a little bit of a translation gaffe on my part. It's a little bit of liberty. The word in the medieval Florentine is the same used in French to describe the cut of meat with the ribs, the coat, that that cut of beef that has the rib attached to it. That's that same word used here in the medieval Florentine. So it's a meaty rib bit, and obliques seemed about where it is anatomically. But you should know that there's a lot of butchery terminology here, meat terminology, femurs and thighs and these cult, these cuts of meat out of the side of an animal. All of that butchery stuff helps dehumanize Satan. I mean, he's not a human, but you know what I mean. It turns him into a bit of a beast, or more of a beast, perhaps we should say. And it also keeps us in grounded in this kind of anatomical format. It's a really interesting little piece here that continues on in the problematics of Satan. That is, he, he's a cut of meat. He's not human. Obviously, he's a fallen angel, whether seraph or archangel. We can debate with Aquinas all we want, but he's a fallen angel of some sort. He's here at the very center of the universe. And more specifically, there's something else at the center of the universe, a dirty joke. This is it. 
the moment that they turn around. You see, Dante knows that the Earth is a sphere. He's not like those idiots in the Spanish court who somehow think the world is flat and you're going to sail off the end of it. No, Dante has read his Pythagoras, or at least he's read of Pythagoras, and Dante has read his Aristotle, or at least he's read of Aristotle. Dante knows that the Earth is a globe. He knows that this is a spherical object and they pass the center. And what is the very center of the Earth? Well, it's Satan's anus. Satan's anus is not only the center of the Earth, it's the center of the entire universe. Remember, we're in a Ptolemaic universe. Everything is circling around the globe of the Earth. All the stars on their spheres. Remember, the sun is just considered another star, as is the moon. And they're circling around and around the Earth. And at the very center of the Earth... There's Satan's anus, and that's where they turn around. Now, let me tell you that there's <laughs> there's a little bit of commentary on this, and it's an interesting point. The question, and I don't want to get too gross, but the question is, are Satan's genitals the center of the universe, or is his anus? I take it it is his anus because of the emphasis on the hip bone and the hip in the socket spot. You could argue otherwise, and people have argued otherwise. This brings us to a very interesting question, and we're going to go down a little bit in the weeds here. Does Satan need an anus? Satan is eating, if you remember, Brutus, Cassius, and Judas Iscariot. He's not swallowing, but he's chewing on them, and he is flaying Judas, and we assume, I guess, that some of Judas's parts, some of the spinal muscles and skin, go down Satan's throat. We assume, I mean, we know he's bleeding slobber that is made up of the blood of these three sinners, but at the same time, he is eating. Of course, he's not really swallowing, and so he's not being nourished. And if he is a parody of the Last Supper or the Eucharist, then he is eating without being nourished, eating without being saved. But at the same time, does Satan have a digestive tract? That's a huge question. It's a question that will befuddle many a theologian because Satan does have a mouth. If you go out and look at many medieval drawings, you'll see that Satan's anus is often another face. This is because he's said to have kind of two faces, Janus-like. It's also said that he eats from the wrong end and then defecates from where his mouth is. This is all part of a larger scatological body dirty joke about Satan. So it is often commonly seen that he has some kind of digestive tract. Giving him one certainly makes him closer to being human. Do angels have digestive tracts? That's unclear. And in fact, it's unclear why Satan would have hip bones and why Satan would have femurs and obliques and, while we're at it, 
why Satan would have faces. All these bodily arrangements are questions that impinge on the notion of who Satan is. And let's just stay in the weeds for one more second. Does Satan have genitals? If they turn around, not at his anus, but at his genitals, then does he have them? Well, that's a big question. And believe it or not, that troubles a great many theologians. Here's why. Do angels have genitals? They probably do. They probably need them. There's a couple problems here. One, when Jesus is asked about the new life in heaven, he says it will be as the angels are without marriage. So in the resurrection, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but be as the angels are. And some theologians take this to mean that essentially angels are sexless. I would argue, (laughs) I think I'm on pretty solid ground here, that you can have sex outside of marriage. While Jesus says there's no marriage in the resurrection, he doesn't necessarily say that you'll be genital-free in the resurrection or that angels are genital-free, although many theologians take it that way. They then have a problem in two spots. One, in Genesis, when the sons of God, who are considered to be fallen angels, when the sons of God come down and mate with the daughters of men and create the Nephilim, the giant race of hideous creatures who eventually cause God to judge the world and bring on Noah's flood. Somehow, they must have some kind of genitalia in order to mate with the daughters of men. And then there's another curious passage. It's in the prophet Zechariah. It's in chapter 5, verse 9. And there, there are angels who appear to be female. They are certainly gendered in the Hebrew, and they appear to be female. If they're female, wouldn't that indicate then that there's a difference in genitalia? I mean, how do you know a female in a biblical context? You don't know DNA. You don't know chromosomes. You don't know anything about that. How do you determine the gender orientation of an angelic being? Well, I think it must be through genitalia. All of these things bear in on whether Satan and angels have (laughs) digestive tracts or genitals. I realize that that's going way down in the weeds of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But it is an interesting theological question, and it is one that plagues a world divided between matter and spirit, and exactly how much matter does spirit have? Let's talk about the Pilgrim's Confusion. Virgil turns around at this exact midpoint in the universe, turns around so that now he's climbing up. You realize he's taken a hold of Satan like a ladder and he started down like you were going to climb down a ladder. And so he's coming down feet first, down, down, down. And then he reaches the middle of the sphere. This is rather amazing stuff. And he has to flip around and put his head first so now he can climb out. That's the moment when we begin the climb, the exact moment. Because if Virgil didn't flip around, then he would be going backwards up. He'd be leading with his feet 
up a ladder because they've changed directions by 180 degrees at the center point of the earth. But notice that the pilgrim is still confused. I believed we were going back to hell again. The pilgrim is confused about Satan's directionality, but never confused about Virgil's. Just think about that for a minute. The pilgrim is confused about which way Satan is facing. He gets out of this climb and he comes to the edge, gets set down on the edge, and he looks up and he expects to see Lucifer. And notice this is the first time the being is named by a Christian name, Lucifer, this late in the passage. He expects to see Lucifer's three faces and instead sees his legs. He's rattled. He's confused. Again, a little bit problematic in terms of of the conversion experience, but also, we'll talk about this in a minute, but also important to note that this has to be rationalized out. We'll talk about why that's important in just a minute. Let's go back to that ladder passage. Virgil says, hold tight, because it's by stairs like these that we've got to take our departure from such all-encompassing evil. And this is a moment in which this passage actually references another moment in comedy. In Inferno, Canto 17, when they get on the back of Garion to ride down from the seventh circle of violence to the eighth circle of fraud at exactly the same spot, line 82 and 84, as here lines 82 and 84, there is exactly the same rhyme. Stairs, scale, evil, male. That can't be a mistake. It has to be that at essentially the midpoint of the poem, Canto 17 and the ride on Garion's back, the midpoint point of the canticle of Inferno, we have the exact same rhyme that we have repeated here for the climb down Satan. And does this go back to our initial point of why does Dante take a hold of Virgil? Does Dante know that he cannot jump levels? He can't get from one level to another without help. Virgil forces him down the Screefield slope toward the violent. Virgil helps him into the boat, we presume, with Karen and gets him across Acheron, the river, and on into hell because Dante has fainted. Virgil here helps him out of hell. Is there a way that the pilgrim is not able to make these kinds of transitions. And that's an interesting point because you can blow it out into a little bit of metapoetics that at the transition points, Dante needs the old poet to make that transition. It's an interesting point, and Dante seems to be underlining it for us by using exactly the same rhyme, scale male, in exactly the same lines, 82 and 84, in Canto's 17 on the ride on Garion, and in Canto 34 on the ride on Virgil's back. After that, the passage goes on, he got out through a little hole in the rock, set me down right on its rim, and with careful footing, brought himself over to me. I lifted my eyes, believing I'd see Lucifer just as I'd left him. Instead, I saw that his legs were sticking up above me. This is so interesting that, again, the pilgrim is still confused about Satan's directionality, but never confused about Virgil's. He knows exactly how Virgil turned around. He's 
not in any doubt about Virgil. <laughs> so much poetic allegory clearly going on at this very moment, but still confused a bit about Satan. This is the moment in which Dante names the creature Lucifer. It's a little bit of paraphrastic phrasing. We've waited a long time to get a kind of Christian name for this being. Virgil has named him Dis. We've used various metaphors, windmills, bats, birds, etc. Right as we're taking our leave of him, we actually get his name, Lucifer. Is that because Dante wants to make sure we understand who that is? Is that because Dante can finally name the being, having now escaped the being, having escaped his orbit, gotten through, out, through this little crack in the rock and the, and the ice? Is that why he can name the being now? Unclear. All valid suggestions, but we can say this, Dante is completely irritated at anybody who doesn't get the point. Well, he didn't get the point, but he seems mad at those who also don't get it. If I became rattled like that, the poet steps out and says, then let the dullards out there think a bit about the point I just passed. Well, in other words, so long, flat earthers. If you don't get it, if you don't get what just happened, then you need to sit down and think about it a little bit and need to think about what happened. Now, it's interesting that the pilgrim doesn't really understand and the poet is making a play that the reader might not understand and the reader needs to sit back and think it through. Let me talk about this for just a second because it's a really interesting larger point. There's a way to think about the comedy as a whole, the three canticles, uh, in a kind of generalized way. And let me let me just do this for you really quickly. This is too generalized. It's too overarching. But it's an easy, quick reference point. Inferno, the first canticle, is about the deficits and corrections of the will, of choice. These are people who've made bad choices in their life, from Ulysses all the way up to Francesca. These are people whose will is corrupted in some way. Purgatorio, where we're headed next, the next canticle, is about the perfection of the will, the learning how to make the right choices, but also Purgatorio is about the defects of the intellect. That is how you're not thinking right. You're not thinking through matters of body and spirit correctly. You're not thinking through even embryology correctly. Here's how to start thinking through it correctly. So Purgatorio is about the perfection of the will and the deficits or correction of the intellect. And then Paradiso is about the perfection of the intellect. So we have defects of the will, then we have perfection of the will and defects of the intellect, and then we have perfection of the intellect. If we're headed in that direction as a very overarching schematic, then it's interesting that right here we have a moment in which the poet is stepping out and saying, reason this out, figure this out, figure out what just happened to me. I couldn't figure it out because my intellect was still impaired. If your intellect is still impaired, figure it out. And that's setting us up for Purgatorio. It's setting us up for the grand thematics of Purgatorio, of figuring things out, of using reason and, as we'll discover, emotion and, as we'll discover, art to 
understand the universe on an intellectual plane, not just a matter of choice, but on a brain level, on a level of what you understand as an intellect walking about purgatory. In this passage, there is more than one Felix Culpa. Remember Felix Culpa from the last episode of this podcast, Fortunate Fall, the idea that something bad has happened, but God has turned it out for good. There are several fortunate falls in this passage, and I want to outline them for you at the end of this podcast episode because I think it's really important to see them operating inside this passage. One, Satan provides the way out of hell for Dante. Isn't that an interesting Felix Culpa? Here's the king of evil, the king of Dis, the head of this entire kingdom who's stuck here, not in the ice, but in a hole in the ice, is held in place here. And yet this figure, this fallen angel, this epicenter of evil is the way out of hell. Not for everyone. When you get into hell, if you're Ulysses or Francesca, you can't get down here and get out unless you're Virgil. So he's the way out of hell for Dante and for Virgil because Virgil comes through the hole, right? Virgil turns around and comes through and steps out onto the other side, upside down, in the upside down, to use a word from a very popular TV series, steps upside down, in the upside down, on the other side of the world. He He's past the center point. So Satan is the way out. That is surely a Felix culpa, something thrown down from heaven in judgment, who provides the actual ladder that allows the pilgrim and his damned guide out of hell. But there's a second Felix Culpa here, and that is that Satan is the pivot point in the entire universe. Think about this for a second. If we're in a Ptolemaic universe and it's all wrapping around the earth and the angels are spinning the spheres with the planets on it, Satan is the pivot point. The epitome of evil has been turned into the axis of the universe, the center on which it all turns is Satan. And while that may lead us to make sarcastic jokes about Satan's butt being the middle of the universe, nonetheless, this is clearly a Felix Culpa. This is the axis. Everything is spinning on this axis. And as we'll see, the heavens are spinning around this point. So, This is fundamental to the construction of the universe because it is the center on which everything spins. And as we'll discover in Paradiso, everything spins because of love. That's all ahead of us. There's a third Felix Culpa here, and this is the one I really want you to see. When Dante and Virgil pass this midpoint, they turn around. Well, Virgil turns around. Dante's just hanging on. Virgil turns around. Boy, he really must be exhausted, right, to climb down this gigantic creature that's, what is it, 80 stories high? And so grab it at about, I don't know, the 30th floor and then climb to, I don't know, the the 60th floor. 
This is really an unbelievable climb. Climb with someone hanging on your back? Good grief. No wonder Virgil's out of breath. So when they do this and they make this turn and they end up on the underside with Satan's legs sticking up, they're now headed out, right? This is clearly going to finally and ultimately be the way out. It means that while we have been going down, 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 down in hell, we've actually been going up all along. Think about a globe. Pretend you start at the bottom. You see yourself as going down to the center of the earth. You perceive it as a descent. But if you back way away from it and think about that walk to the center and then the walk on, you've been going up all along, which means... That every time Dante turned left in hell, he really turned right. Because this has been an ascent. It is always an ascent. From the moment in that dark wood, all the way up Mount Purgatory to come, and all the way through the heavens, this has been a singular journey. Of whenever you feel that you are going down, the comedy is that actually you might be going up. In the darkest moments, when you feel that you are in a place where you can't escape, you might actually be, if comedy is right, on the way up. In fact, the way down may ultimately turn out to be the way up. Surely you've experienced this. Surely you've experienced this with the death of a loved one, with divorce, with a breakup. Surely with the loss of a friend, with a dark moment financially in your life. Surely somewhere in your life you've seen this. You've seen comedy play out, that the way down is actually the way up. This is the second wild revelation in comedy. The first is that you move the fence because of love. Oh, wait till we get to Purgatorio. There's going to be so much fence moving, you can't even believe it. In fact, in the next episode of this podcast, we're not even to Purgatorio yet, there's going to be a grand fence moving moment. So much fence moving. You move the fence because of love. And two, the way down is actually the way up. We've turned around... And now we still got to get out of here. We got to get out of the center of the earth and back up to the top. I mean, we can't just live in the center of the earth, can we? So subscribe to this podcast, rate it, like it. Thank you for the recent ratings of this podcast. They have meant so much to me. Someone said that this podcast had made a difference in their life and was a salve for their mind. And that was one of the kindest things I have ever heard. Thank you so much for that comment. Thanks for being on the journey with me and stick with me. We got two more episodes in Inferno. And then, well, then we have to look back and see Inferno for what it truly is, a masterpiece. I'm Mark Scarborough. This is Walking with Dante. I'll talk to you soon.